Please remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text from John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. Again, give your ear to God's holy word. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I say to you, said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. As far as the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, most of all, for your son Jesus and how your word reveals him to us. Lord, we long to see him in your word, and as we pray that we might become like him, that we might know your grace through him. And so, Father, we pray for your grace, that you would be present by your spirit to do just that. Bless the hearing and the preaching, the reading of your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We're in a short season in the, uh, in the church year called Epiphany. And Epiphany means a manifestation or a sudden revelation, a realization, or an insight. And this season recalls and celebrates the revelation of God's glory in Jesus Christ. And so many of the texts that we read uh, in this season, there's an insight into Jesus' glory or his identity given to someone. In last week's uh, readings, the gospel lesson was uh, the Magi come to worship and acknowledge Jesus 
as the king. And another common reading in this time would be the transfiguration, where Jesus' glory is manifested to certain of his disciples on the mountain. And uh, today's gospel lesson is also an epiphany text, because in it, uh, John uses the word see, or saw, or look, uh, or some derivative of that, behold, you know, some 13 plus times. I don't know if you noticed that uh, when I was reading it a moment ago, how often he said, and he looked and saw him, behold, the Lamb of God, and Jesus turned and saw them following, and said, come and see, and you just over and over again, it's about seeing and perceiving Jesus. So one of John's main aims in this text is that we perceive, that we see Jesus for who he is. That's what happens to Nathaniel at the end of the text when he says, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Nathaniel has an insight, a sight, a revelation of who Jesus is. But this is, it's also a text about discipleship. This is where Jesus, in John's gospel, begins to call disciples to himself. And so the outflow, what John's getting at, is the outflow of perceiving Jesus' glory, John says, is discipleship. And, and he's trying to show us what does that involve when you perceive who Jesus is and you are committed to being his disciple. And as we walk through the text, we're going to see John shows us that the outflow of perceiving Jesus' glory involves at least three things in discipleship. And when you perceive Jesus' glory, you will trust and follow him. That's one. You'll bring others to Jesus. That's two. And when you see his glory, you'll be transformed by Jesus. That's three. So when you see Jesus for who, for who he is, you'll trust and follow him. You'll bring others to him, and ultimately you'll be transformed by him. Let's walk through the text and, and look at these. First following, you can see this right off the bat in verse 35 where it says, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. All right, now, follow uh, doesn't simply mean that they began to move after him. They walked uh, where he did, and although that probably actually happened, you know, um, that they went and followed Jesus to where he was, but it means that they became his disciples. Uh, seeing and following throughout the Gospel of John are used as terms for discipleship. A disciple follows his teacher in the sense uh, that he's with them, and he goes where his master goes. He observes him. He does what he does. And then on a human scale, when the master is gone, um, he is there after his master to sort of embody uh, his teaching his life. The, a disciple follows uh, the teacher. And so the two disciples leave John as their master and they turn and follow Jesus. Follow me, you see, is the call that Jesus issues uh, to Philip just a little while after. It's also the same call that Jesus issues to every single disciple who will come after him. So from this, you see, there's no Christianity apart from, one, a personal relationship with Jesus, in which, two, we become his disciples. There's no such thing as Christianity apart from, one, a personal relationship with Jesus, in which we become his disciples. 
Yes, Christianity has doctrines, essential doctrines. Yes, the church is an institution, but at its bedrock, at its most essential nature, Christianity, in fact, reality itself, is inescapably personal. Follow me, Jesus says, to Philip and to us. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon put it this way. Let me read you his quote. He says this, Our faith is a person. The gospel that we have to preach is a person. If you had asked the twelve apostles in their day, what do you believe in? They would have pointed at their master and said, We believe him. But what are your doctrines? There they stand, incarnate. But what is your practice? There stands our practice. He is our example. What then do you believe? Hear the glorious answer of the Apostle Paul. We preach Christ crucified. Our creed, our body of divinity, our whole theology is summed up in the person of Christ. End quote. Jesus is so concerned with our kind of relationship to him that when the first disciples come to him, we're told in the text that one of them is Andrew, and most commentators agree that the unnamed disciple there is, is John himself, um, that Jesus asked these two in verse 38, what do you seek? You know, it's a deceptively simple question. You know, at one level it means, why are you walking after me? Like, what, are you, what are you doing here, right? Um, but fundamentally, this is the question that's asked of any potential disciple. What do you seek when you come to follow Jesus? What do you seek when you come to follow Jesus? I mean, the possibilities are many. Some people are seeking escape from the hardships of life. They want protection from the trials and tribulation that the world throws at us and think that Jesus will shield them from illness or from hardship. If that's the case, you're likely to be disappointed with Jesus because following him doesn't lead us away from trials, but often straight into them. Right? We can think of an example where Jesus puts his disciples into a boat and he sends them out onto the middle of a lake right in a storm-tossed uh, sea, in a storm-tossed night. He puts them on the boat and sends them out there right into the middle of the trial. That's part of his training of them. Jesus doesn't keep us from trials. He doesn't keep us out of the storm but he is with us when we go through them. Other people come to Jesus looking for success, variously defined, however you might define that. For, for some people, that means a harmonious family relationship. You know, you've heard, you've heard the sayings. You know, people say, kids are getting older. You know, we, we need to get back into church. We need help with the rebellious years. Or, you know, if we live according to God's ways, then our relationships will have more peace. And sometimes that's true. Right? If you're humble, if you're quick to admit fault, seek restoration with others as Jesus teaches us to, uh, your relationships might improve. But in Luke 12, listen to the sayings of Jesus. Jesus says this, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you not at all, but rather division. 
father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That's Luke 12, 51 through 53. Some of you know by experience that doing the right thing, doing what Jesus tells you to do in a situation or in a relationship actually leads to more strife in your life and not less. For others, it's other things. It's a good career. It's getting into the right school, a religious school, having a happy marriage. All of those are good things. And most people think that these good things require a certain amount of religion, and Jesus can help them with that. But Jesus says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Luke 9.23 So what is this? Is Jesus against happiness? Is Jesus against the good things in your life? Christianity, following Christ as a disciple, is an invitation to come with Jesus and grind out a miserable life with the rest of us. Is that what he's calling us to? No. No, Jesus is actually interested in ultimate happiness, ultimate peace, ultimate joy. The Bible teaches that the source of all of our misery is sin and idolatry. When we put those very often good things above God and our affections and make them ultimate things, then sin starts to have its corrosive effect in your life, right? The only way to be truly happy is to be made right with God because only then will God receive us into his love and work new life in us. Only by being justified before God, before God by Perceiving Jesus by beholding him, as John said to his disciples, as the Lamb of God. Finding forgiveness through his sacrificial blood and receiving his spotless perfection as our own righteousness before the Father. That's why before you follow him as your Lord, you need to see Jesus as the sacrifice for your sins. To be made right with God. After, after a lifetime of putting other things before God, you need to see Jesus as the sacrifice to put you right with God. If the problem isn't that those other things that we like and we want and we enjoy, the problem isn't that they're illicit. It's just that they're not ultimate. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, Jesus says, and all these other things will be added unto you. In the amounts and in the timing and in the way, that Jesus wants. To come to Jesus means we must rely on his blood to wash away our sins and on his righteousness to clothe us with his glory. We must forsake our quest to seek life in anyone or anything else. That's why taking up the cross, an instrument of death, is actually the doorway to life. All right, the very next verse from Luke 9.23, 9.24 that I just quoted Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Take up your cross and follow me. Die to your own disordered desires. Put your trust in me for the forgiveness of your sins. Die to yourself and find that I will raise you from the dead. 
In light of this, it's worth asking yourself a few questions. Have you come to Christ? Person to person, do you know and follow him? Or is Christianity merely a set of propositions and rules to you? As you come to Jesus, what do you seek? Or to put it negatively, what other than Jesus do you think will make you happy in life? Listen, Jesus says, are you seeking to be free from guilt? You will be free in me. Are you seeking peace? You'll have peace with God through my blood. I will take away your sin. Are you seeking rest for your soul and hope for the future? Whatever you seek, it is here. It is truly in him. So we must seek him for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can, one, as I said, have a particular relationship with Jesus, in which, two, we become his disciples. Right? That's the call. First one was follow me. Jesus said, follow me. Right? Two, we become his disciples. Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them in verse 38, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated, teacher, where are you staying? All right, they address him as teacher, rabbi, a term of respect that meant a master. Right? They're asking to be his disciples. That's how that is commonly understood at the time. When you make someone your master, you call them a rabbi. And Christians today are just as much disciples of Jesus as were his first followers. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to teach us through the scriptures that he inspired the apostles to write. Just as it says in John 16, it says this, When he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will tell you of things to come. And he will glorify me, that is Jesus. He will glorify Jesus, for he will take what is of mine and declare it to you. That's John 16, 13 and 14. So to learn from Christ today is to learn from the scriptures, allowing to Jesus to build our faith with the truth that we find there. The most important things that Jesus has to teach us have to do with himself, his salvation of our sins. But he also teaches us how to live. With the Bible and the Spirit, you have the same thing that the original disciples had, time with Jesus, beholding him by faith as the Spirit works in your life to make you more like him. That's exactly what these first two disciples and the other ones we're going to see called, that's exactly what they had. They beheld Jesus and spent time with him. That's what you have in the Bible as you learn to walk after him. Reformer Martin Luther explained it this way. He says, quote, When you have Christ as the foundation and chief blessing of your salvation... Then the other part follows, that you take him as your example, living yourself in service to your neighbor, just as you see Christ has given himself for you, end quote. Follow me. So where can I see him do that? That's what Martin Luther said. Just as you see Christ living, sacrificing for himself, you also do. Where can I see that? In the Bible. In the scriptures, the whole Bible, in verse 45, Philip says, We found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets have written. Genesis to Revelation. By the Spirit's power, we can perceive Jesus. 
right? And they also, verse 38, want to know where he is staying. And like pretty much every other word in this passage, it works on true on two levels, all right? Because stay there means abide, right? Um, where are you abiding? Where do you habitually reside? I mean, what a wonderful question. These are men who want Christ. They want to know him. They want to abide with him. They want to be with him. They want to learn from him. What does Jesus tell them? Verse 39, he said to them, come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. Jesus came. Jesus gave his life for you and he invites you to come and see him, to abide with him in the word and prayer. And this is why, as a church, we've been talking about and uh, promoting, and I'll do it again today, the, the Bible reading plans. We have two or three different versions on the table in the back. Um, this is a place where you can perceive, uh, behold, abide, spend time with Jesus. In those set times, just as we talked about in Sunday school, those set times of prayer where you are perceiving him and letting the Spirit work as you see what Jesus has done for you, and you see how he acts. And then you take time to pray about what you're reading there and talk with God and talk with Jesus. Talk over the experience that you just have um, reading and praying with him, right? This is what it means to follow him. There's no shortcuts. There's no secret formula. That's the life of discipleship. Trusting Jesus' blood for the forgiveness of your sins, learning from in his word, and abiding with him in his presence through prayer. That's following Jesus. That's the first thing that it means to be his disciple, follow him. The second thing it means to be his disciple is to bring others to Jesus. First is following. The second is to bring other people to Jesus. And, and we talked about evangelism in Sunday school class over the past year, and there's always a question uh, when you do that. You know, what the Bible requires of us, what the best method for evangelism is, you know, different temperaments and per personalities. Some people say, you know, you've got to have, you've got to have a direct approach, all right? You've got to approach even strangers uh, with an aim of discussing their eternal salvation. And you just need a regular time to go out, find people, and talk with them about uh, the Lord. And others emphasize a more relational approach, you know, um, Establish a personal connection over time, and then as that relationship deepens, you've got more opportunities uh, to share the gospel because you've got a greater relationship with that person. Some people prefer to hand out printed material. Others engage in open-air preaching, and there's a need for all of these approaches, all kinds of them. And if you look through the text that we just read, uh, there's elements of each one in the passage. Right? Elements of all of those in the passage. But I'm going to categorize what happens here under two headings. On the one hand, you're going to see biblical proclamation. Okay? When John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, he's appealing to scriptural categories to tell people about Jesus. Right? Philip, likewise, appeals to the scriptures on a more personal level. We have found him whom Moses and the law and the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, verse 45. All right, both of them, one in a public way and one in a personal way, are appealing to the scriptures. And we should emphasize the teaching of the Bible in our witness to Jesus because it is the word of God that brings people to faith. 
It is the word of God that is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hebrews 4.12. All right, that's the scriptures that we use to abide with Jesus, to put them in front of people. That's why um, in my own experience of coming to the Lord or any evangelistic or missionary experiences that I had, that it's just... It's just so important to get the Bible in front of people so that they can perceive Jesus. Even just this week, I was reading about a a missionary um, working with a a tribe in Western and Central Africa called the Fulani. Some of you have heard me talk about them before. They're 99 point something percent Muslim, and they're some of the most resistant uh, people in the world. They're their cultural identity is completely wrapped up in, in being Muslim. Um, they've got, you know, intense animistic practices. And anyone who converts is almost immediately persecuted. In fact, the missionary that I was reading about this week talked about one person that he uh, knew about that converted and then that week was poisoned by their family and died. I mean, the persecution's intense. So very resistant people group. But the fascinating thing that this missionary said was he came upon a village where one of the village chiefs had a copy of the New Testament in Fafulde in their language. And he would gather some of the older men in the village every night and read to them from Matthew. And this was his his testimony. He said the chief would slowly read over every word savoring every part, and he would just pause every now and then and say, isn't that incredible? He'd read about something that Jesus did, and he just looked at these other guys and say, isn't that incredible? You know, none of these people are Christians, but as they are able to perceive Jesus, his loveliness, you know, his power, his holiness, his grace is just magnetic. These people who are absolutely Um, opposed to Christianity as a concept, they open up the Bible and they perceive who Jesus is. And he's magnetic. It's so important to have biblical witness, to get the Bible in front of people as we seek to bring them to Christ. On the other hand, in this passage, you also see personal testimony. We found the Messiah, is what Andrew tells Peter. Right? And that comes out of his personal experience with Jesus. When he met Jesus, he had a certain understanding of him. Rabbi, he said, Master, Teacher, kind of like John the Baptist, where are you staying? Do you see that? But after he's spent that time with Jesus, what does he tell Peter? We found the Messiah. Did you see that shift? Jesus went from being the teacher to being the Savior. So while our witness should always include biblical explanation about Jesus, it's also important for us to speak about and speak from our personal experience with the Lord. Right? We should tell others about what caused us to believe. Tell them about the joy of knowing your sins are forgiven, the peace that comes from the Holy Spirit and the love that we feel as God's children. And here let me say that the more recent testimony is the better. Okay, there's something about out of your ongoing 
relationship, your ongoing experience of the gospel in Jesus. You don't want to be uh, that person that says, you know, I came to the Lord 20 years ago, or I grew up in the church, and so thankfully I haven't really had any sins or trials or problems or experiences with the Lord. Um, you know, you should also read the Bible and know about Jesus. You don't want to be that person. No, you should, you should be telling them about, I was reading Hebrews this month, and my prayer life has just been radically altered by understanding that Jesus is in heaven interceding for me, that Jesus has a tender heart for me, right? Tell, re, tell them about repenting, of being angry at your kids on the way to school this week. Tell them about Jesus' ongoing work in your life. Look, if you have a good doctor, a good experience with a doctor, you tell your friends about that. I know because many of y'all have told me. That's just something that we do. We tell them, you know, I was feeling really sick. I went to them. They gave me this. It made me feel a lot better. Or they gave me this therapy or that one. And it really, really worked. Your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, are they not sick of soul? Are they not ailing? Don't you have good experience of repentance and grace and joy with Christ that you can share with them? Overwhelming, overwhelmingly, new believers say that a key factor for them coming to Christ was a personal, heartfelt testimony of a friend, of a relative, of a neighbor. So as important as preaching is, something that's at least important or maybe more important as a church is to have a whole legion of Andrews, those who bring people one by one to Jesus through their heartfelt testimony and biblical witness to Christ. Apologetic arguments are great, but this, this is what really overcomes skepticism or questions. All right, see, look in the text. Jesus or uh, Andrew and John... When they were coming to Jesus, they're favorable, right? They, they believed John the Baptist. They wanted to follow Jesus. They had a question, though. Where are you staying? Where are you abiding? What is your life like? What, is your, what are your teaching like? Nathaniel, um, Nathaniel's skept, a skeptic. Verse 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? Messiah is not from Nazareth. Everyone should know that. Come on. Are you telling me Jesus, is, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is the Messiah? Or the answer to both Honest questions, skepticism, whatever it is, is come and see. Come and see Jesus in my life. Come and see Jesus in our church, at work, in our community. Come and see Jesus in the Bible. Right? That's the aim of our witness, not to win arguments or present an interesting philosophy or a helpful lifestyle or parenting tips, but to bring people to Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can truly save their souls. And if we bring people to him, then he will do the rest. Right? That's the second thing that flows out of perceiving Jesus, bringing people to him. Finally, discipleship means being transformed by Jesus. That's what's signified in verse 42. Verse 42, where it says, Jesus looked at Simon and said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated as stone, or Peter, as we say in English from the Greek. Now it's significant. 
it's pretty significant that Jesus renames Peter. He gives him a new identity, right? In the Bible, naming something shows authority over the thing that is named, okay? Think about Adam in the garden. God has just named everything in creation, and he sets Adam up, and he brings everything to Adam and has Adam name everything, right? Well, one of the significances of that is, you know, Adam is, uh, has authority over all of these things, right? So in the Bible, naming shows authority. Jesus is Peter's Lord, but it also, names also give essential characteristics of something. You could think of our Old Testament lesson that we read with Jacob. Jacob's name meant supplanter, trickster, right? Uh, deceiver, even. And all throughout these stories in Genesis, Jacob deceives people, and he uses that, you know, to his advantage. But we read about where he wrestles with God, and God, you know, asks him, uh, that's a significant word in that, in that story, name. What is your name, right? He wants to know what God's name is, but God says, what is your name? Your name is no longer Jacob. Now it's Israel, the one who wrestles with God. You've prevailed, right? So an essential characteristic of Jacob has changed there. Right? After that story, you don't see Jacob using deceit in order to further himself. Okay, So the, an essential characteristic has, has changed. Now think about what you know about Peter at this point. Is Peter like a stone at all? Is Peter maybe, is he quiet, kind of inert, considering, non-reactive? No, Peter's impetuous, right? Peter's the first one to pop off, okay? Not always right, but never in doubt. You know, people like that, that's Peter, okay? Um, sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's not. Okay, so Peter's not a stone like that. Is Peter, uh, is he a stone because he's stable, he's steadfast, unwavering. He will never, never deny Jesus. No, I think we all know the answer to that one. That's not why Jesus calls him that. Peter's not very stone-like at this point. So what's going on? I mean, does Jesus not know him very well? They did just meet. No, that can't be it. Look, let me show you why. Look at this story um, in verse 47, this strange story with Nathaniel. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Jesus sees him and says, you are an honest seeker. You're not the kind to dissemble or hide your thoughts. All right, Jesus is doing something here for Nathaniel that we all long for. He simply stated something true that's about him. All right, we all long for that. I don't know if that's why Jesus did it, but... We all long for that. Why do, we, why do we want people to do that? To state something true about us to us. Because we all long to be noticed. We all long to be known. Okay, have you, you ever have one of those weeks where it's been difficult, but you feel like you've pulled it all together? You're, you're put together and you're ready to go, and then someone who knows you really well kind of stops and pulls you aside and says, Hey, how how are you doing? Pretty rough, pretty rough week, right? That's a great feeling. 
right? You think that you've you think that you've projected the image of everything's put together, but that person that knows you, hey, are you doing okay this week? It's good to be known. All right, it's even better if it's someone that you respect and they tell you something positive about you. Right? Yeah, I like yeah, you're a diligent, you're a diligent person. I've noticed that about you. We love that. Why? Because it tells you that that person noticed you, that they thought about you, that they know you. How do you know me? Nathanael says to Jesus. Verse 48, Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. What's happening under the fig tree? We don't know. And that's the point. Nathanael knew it was something that only God could know. John doesn't tell us what it is. But Nathanael knew that only God could know that statement. Friends, what this means is that Jesus can see you clear to the bottom. Jesus knows all of your likes, all of your dislikes, all of your habits, all of your personality, all of your quirks, and yes, he knows all of your sins. Even the hidden ones, hidden away in dark corners of your heart that you've never told anybody about, even the ones that you're not totally aware of. And for those in Christ, everything, absolutely everything he sees, calls forth compassion and love and mercy. In Jesus, you have someone who can see you absolutely clear to the bottom and yet loves you through the roof. No one else in the world loves you the way that Jesus loves you because no one else in the world knows you the way that Jesus knows you. When we come to Jesus, we see him as our Lamb of God, our teacher, our Lord. But this is because Jesus first sees us in terms of what his salvation is going to do in our lives. And that's the point about giving Peter his new identity. Why does he call Peter, Peter? Because in Christ, that's who he is. In Christ, that's who he's going to make him to be. Jesus sees us as those redeemed by his blood who because of the word and the power of our fellowship with him are being transformed into new people. Jesus sees us even now, even in our weakness, even the continuing sin that you have as we will be with him in glory. And when he looks at you, he calls you holy, strong, beloved, child, friend. That's your identity. And this identity that he gives to you, in other words, is purely of grace. How? How can he do that? How can he do that and not be lying? Because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He looks at Peter and calls him the stone because he's going to die for every single one of Peter's sins. All of the impetuous moments, all of the denials all of the failings, he's going to die for all of those and wipe all of those away and make him the rock. When he looks at you, he calls you holy and beloved because he's going to wipe away all of your sins and he's going to make you pure and joyful far beyond you can even imagine now. 
And when you walk with him, as you behold him, he will make you to become an experience who he already declares you to be by grace. You will see greater things than these, Jesus says. You will know, he tells Nathaniel, you know I'm the Messiah after a certain understanding. You know that I'm the Son of God. And however, Nathaniel understood that. You know I'm the king of Israel in a kind of political way. You will understand, you will see, Jesus says, in a greater way. As you walk with me, as you see me in the scriptures and in prayer, by the transforming power of my spirit, I will work into you a righteousness and a peace and a joy that can only come from heaven until I appear again from heaven. And then... We will be like him, for we will see him as he is. This is Jesus' call to discipleship, to you and me, to see and perceive his glory. That means to know him and to follow him personally, to bring other people to him and to be transformed by him. So let's pray that he would do that for us. Father, we thank you for the mercy that you display in your son Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away our sin by his blood and gives us his righteousness by his resurrection, who makes us your children in the joy and the peace of the Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray that your spirit would come and grant us a greater revelation, a greater epiphany, manifestation, insight into your mercy and glory in Christ, that we might be more like him, that we might be more like the people that you have made us by grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.